Welcome to Lady Killers, a podcast about female serial killers. I am your host, Abraham Archambo. Let's go dig up some bodies. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on when you're all listening to this. I'm recording from a hot garage up here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, The heat has subsided a little bit over the past couple days, and uh, it's still a little bit warm out there. Uh, All that heat uh, remaining behind, you can still see some heat waves rising off of the street here. Uh, We are heading down the final stretch here. School is coming, and which will mean the return to homeschooling. Uh, for me and my kids, so uh, it's going to leave me with a lot less time to record these episodes of Lady Killers, Uh, so we'll see how that goes, but I'm also back into pre-production on my horror flick, Loon Lake. Uh, Things are starting to progress along pretty nicely, Uh, well, I guess the best they can during these unprecedented times in our history. Um, You know, I'm still waiting for a little bit more direction on when we can actually start shooting safely, and once we can do that, I want to be out there doing that. Uh, you know, we gotta we gotta get out there and shoot this thing. I really want you all to see it. I want to scare the hell out of you, and uh, you should be looking for it shortly. So uh, keep your eyes peeled, and keep your ears open for any news that I might be dropping on you. Hope you're all doing the best you can during this time, and uh, hope you're just bringing your A game to this new world that we live in now. Um, You know, it's rough out there right now. We're all struggling, and we're trying to find our place in this new world. So I hope you're you're doing the best you can and helping each other out while you're out there. But enough of these updates. Let's uh, dive back into some Lady Killers action that we uh, started last week. When we last met, we were discussing the life of Velma Barfield, the killer from North Carolina. We left her as things were starting to look up for her and for her family. Uh, Her son Ron had returned from the army and he never had to see any combat in Vietnam. So that's a huge plus for for him as well as for his mother who she was really worried about him getting killed over in Vietnam. So, uh, you know, Velma had also just beaten that, that check forging case of hers and didn't have to do any jail time. So uh, she's good to go. Ready to start a new chapter in her life. So without further ado, let's finish part two of Velma Barfield, our lady killer from North Carolina. Also on top of this, you know, Ronald, her son, was finally discharged from the army. And he never had to go fight in Vietnam at all. So, you know, things were really, really looking up for Velma and her family. She was clean. She had gotten away with forging prescriptions, basically with a with slap on the wrist. Her son didn't have to go fight Vietnam, and she was she was ready to face the world again and start over. And this could have, you know, it would have gotten better, but she was dove back into those pills again, you know. She just couldn't couldn't shake them, and this caused a huge divide between her and her mother Lily. Lily just couldn't stand to see Velma nodding off all the time, 
passing out in front of everyone, embarrassing and shaming the whole family. Um, and she would let Velma know about this. She would constantly tell her, you need to get cleaned up. I can't have you being this way here, you know, it's, this is ridiculous. And so Lily would always be in Velma's face until Lily got extremely sick during the summer of 1974, mysteriously. Her stomach cramped up and she was racked with violent vomiting and diarrhea to the point where Velma had to take her into the hospital. But nothing could be determined when she was in there. Nobody could figure out what caused Lily to have such a violent attack on her system. And after a couple days, she was feeling better, so everybody agreed to send her home. Maybe it was just a, you know, food poisoning or the stomach flu, so she seemed better, so, you know, they sent her back. And then a side note, during this hospital stay for Lily, uh, the man that Velma was dating at the time had died in a horrible traffic accident. Um, and for some reason, Velma was listed as the beneficiary, and she was given a check for five grand, so... You know, her mother's healthy again, newfound money, burning a hole in her pocket. You know, things were really, truly looking up for Velma at this point. But that Christmas, Lily grabbed one of her sons and she pulled him aside to discuss a matter that was kind of confusing her. Apparently, a loan company had called her to tell her that she was about to default on her car loan. They told her she hadn't been making any of the payments and that they were going to have to come and repossess her car. But Lily told her son that she had paid that car off a long time ago, and she didn't, she didn't really know what to make of it. She didn't know what was going on. Um, but she did think something fishy was going on. Her son assured her that it was probably some sort of mix-up with the paperwork down at the office, and it was probably just going to work itself out eventually. But after she said something was feeling a little bit fishy and out of place, two days later... Lily felt terribly ill yet again. Those same symptoms arose, but this time the vomit and diarrhea contained a large amount of blood in it. And so Velma called her brother Olive to come and assist, and he was just completely disgusted at his mother's condition when he arrived. So he called the ambulance, and they rushed down there and rushed her to the hospital with Velma riding alongside her the whole way. And uh, so Velma was the only person in the ambulance with her mother between their home and the hospital. And uh, upon arriving two hours later, Lily would pass away. So now Velma had lost both of her parents. Velma would be arrested early the next year after being nabbed for writing bad checks. So now she had moved on to bad check writing. And she was sentenced this time to six months in jail, but... She only had to serve three of those months out of the sentence, and in 1976, Velma then found herself working as a live-in caregiver for an elderly couple by the name of Montgomery and Dolly Edwards. Montgomery had lost both of his legs and his eyesight due to diabetes, so he couldn't really get around by himself and he needed Velma to take care of him. His wife Dolly was, she was a cancer survivor, so... She also had some trouble getting around and needed Velma's help tremendously. And they said she was a good caretaker and they all seemed to get along just fine. Velma actually found a local church nearby and she just, she really enjoyed attending church. She felt it made her a better person. It helped her, you know, keep her grounded. So things were really, 
looking pretty good for Velma after her, her jail time. Maybe she learned her lesson. As the days waned on, tensions began to rise between Velma and her employers, the Edwards. Dolly would constantly nag Velma and tell her just how terrible she was at doing her job. And Velma, who hated being talked down to, you know, because that's something that always happened throughout her entire life, was people talking down to her, and she just, she hated it. And she eventually just became fed up with it. Montgomery Edwards would pass away in January of 1977. And that was considered natural causes. There was no foul play or any suspicions at that point. Um, and Dolly, the remaining survivor in that situation, she still needed assistance. She wasn't grateful of any of it, and she still talked down to Velma, but she still needed Velma as the caretaker. And so the bickering and the fighting just continued on between those two, and they could never really find some common ground. The following month, on February 26, 1977, Dolly got sick, and at first she thought she just had the flu and it was, it'll, you know, come and go as the flu does. She called her son Preston and let him know, you know, I'm kind of feeling sick. Just to let you know, the two main symptoms were violent diarrhea and violent vomiting. So Velma called an ambulance and Dolly was rushed to the hospital and she was treated and released that same day. Again, they thought it was either the flu or possibly food poisoning. So she was released. But within days, Dolly was dead. Death was starting to follow Velma wherever she went. And the thing here is, she just stopped being distraught over any of it because before, you know, anybody around her would die or she would have a house burned down or this or that. She would just turn to the pills and self-medicate and everything would be okay. And, uh, you know, because she would get so depressed and so distraught over all this, all the trouble that followed her around. But now she finally just gave up. And it was either because she had become just numb to the pain and death that surrounded her, or she was the bringer of said death. Velma always bounced back, and she soon found herself under the employ of an elderly couple by the name of John Henry Lee and his wife, Record. They all seemed to get along just fine, uh, although Velma claimed that John and his wife fought constantly. And this constant fighting really drove Velma crazy. Uh, she couldn't stand to be around them during those heated arguments. And she also said that the, the wife, Record Lee, she just talked too much and she was annoying. She couldn't stand her voice, couldn't stand to be around her. Uh, and this was when Record, the wife, she found out that a check had been forged in her name. So she called the police and, and told them about this, this forged check. But this case went away pretty quickly. Uh, they couldn't find any suspects, uh, which is strange to me because they had a woman working for them who had done jail time for forging checks, but they couldn't find anyone that was capable of forging a check, you know? So, you know, it's just... Just the cops doing a great job, as they always do. On April 27th, John Lee came down with this sickness that just seemed to follow Velma everywhere she went. He was constantly vomiting. He had a bad bout of diarrhea. And there was always blood mixed in with all of this. So John was rushed to the hospital where he spent four days 
And then he was released after his recovery. Same thing here, you know, the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. And so they chalked it up to the common flu and sent him home. But throughout the entire next month, John would suffer from mysterious illness after mysterious illness. Velma was always right there to nurse him back to health, though. She was described by the Lee family as attentive to John's needs and sweet and caring. And they felt, quote, lucky that she was there, end quote. But soon after those comments were made, John Henry Lee came down with another brutal illness and succumbed to it on June 4th, 1977. As a, another side note here, just to show you the devastation that Velma brought down on this poor old man, it was said that John Lee had lost 65 pounds between April 27th and his death on June 4th. He had just, that's not even two months, a month and a half maybe, less than that, he had wasted away to basically nothing. Velma quickly disappeared from the lives of the Lee family after he passed. No surprise there. you got to distance yourself as far away from possible as possible from these people. She started dating a man by the name of Roland Stewart Taylor. And he was a relative of Dolly Edwards, which is two families back, Dolly Edwards. That's how they were introduced to one another when she was under the employ of the Edwards family. And Roland soon became suspicious of Velma when he found some forged checks. So she was right back to her old ways, stealing money. And Velma sensed that, uh, she sensed his suspicion over this forged check. She felt that he was going to come right after her. And so, uh, she didn't want to be sent back to jail. So I guess the only, the only way to stop this would be to get rid of him. So she commenced mixing rat poison which contains large quantities of arsenic, into his beer and his tea throughout the next few months. And then on February 3rd, 1978, Roland fell deathly ill. But Velma, the sweet and caring woman who was always right there, she helped, you know, nurse him back to good health. And things looked to be just fine. You know, she sat by his side, nursing him, you know, back to perfect health through all this. But, uh, Soon after that, he died unexpectedly as well. This time, though, the coroners, they decided to do, you know, toxicology reports and blood tests and everything, and this time they found arsenic in Roland Taylor's blood. And Velma was immediately arrested for his murder and brought in. After Velma's arrest, all those other deaths that surrounded her were investigated as well, uh, authorities had the body of Jennings Barfield, her second husband, exhumed, and upon examination, his body was also found to have trace of a, traces of arsenic. Velma denied any involvement in that death whatsoever, but since they were investigating all these other deaths, she just decided, hey, I'm going to come clean, and she confessed to the murders of Dolly Edwards, John Henry Lee, and her own mother, Lily Bullard. But she would only be charged with the murder of Roland Stewart Taylor. I mean, what, what would cause this mental collapse and what would cause this urge to poison these people? I mean, her own mother? She poisoned her own mother? I mean, I know she didn't have a great upbringing. I know 
According to her, her mother just sat by idly while her father raped and abused her, but to resort to murder, it's it's still a no-no in my book. We, you know, we people out there, we've been abused. Some of us beyond repair, or seemingly beyond repair, and uh, it's still, turning to murder is still not, not the solution to that problem. Uh, but I didn't live in that household with Velma, so I, I don't know, I didn't grow up with her. I didn't see the torture that she possibly endured. I didn't see the rape that she said happened, so I don't know. I just, I really don't know, but uh, this slow-burning revenge murder is just what lady killers ordered, though, I think. The prosecution never hesitated to seek out the death penalty for Velma. Prosecutor Joe Freeman Britt was in charge of the case, and he just loved the death penalty. He was known as, quote, the world's deadliest prosecutor. It was known that during a 17-month period of time, Britt actually prosecuted 13 first-degree murder cases, and he won every single one of them. Velma, on the other hand, was going to be represented by attorney Bob Jacobson, and he was an attorney who had never defended someone in a murder trial before. And in the past, though, Velma always seemed to skate away from trouble. This time, though, her chances of getting out just didn't look too good with uh, with these two attorneys going head-to-head. Uh, I think her murderous ways had finally caught up with her. Like I said before, Velma was only being tried for one count of murder in the first degree, and that was for the murder of Roland Stewart Taylor. In her defense, she claimed that she only meant to make him sick enough so she could return some of the money that she had stolen from him. And apparently that was her M.O. in all of these cases. Apparently what she was doing was either stealing money from people directly or forging checks to get money to continue to supply her drug habit. So this is what she did. And then when she, whenever she would be found out or people would become suspicious of her being the one that was forging these checks, she would try to make them sick and then she would nurse them back to health to make it look like she had nothing to do with it because why would she nurse somebody back to health that she was trying to kill in the first place? She would do that and then by the time they would become healthy again, she would have already returned the money and it wouldn't be an issue and they could move on. And so... If that were true, she would only be facing a second-degree murder charge, and then the death penalty would disappear be taken off the table. But the prosecution also wanted to admit into evidence all of the other people that she had poisoned throughout her life, because she had admitted to some of them already. And Velma's defense attorney, Jacobson, claimed that that was uh, prejudicial, because she was only being charged for the murder of Roland Taylor. The jury shouldn't be allowed to see any of those other cases that don't pertain to this, but Prosecutor Britt, he begged for it. He was stating that the jury had to know, you know, they had a right to know about Velma's past and the things that happened to people that were surrounding her at all times. And Honorable Henry McKinnon, who presided over the trial, he allowed any evidence linking Velma to the deaths of John Henry Lee, Dottie Edwards, and her mother, Lily Bullard. So Joe Britt, he Britt, <clears throat> Joe Britt just went after Velma immediately. He claimed that Roland Taylor 
didn't have to die in this situation. And he could have actually been saved if Velma told the doctors that there was arsenic running through his veins. They had an antidote there for that, if that were the case. And, uh, but they had no idea that Taylor's blood had arsenic in it. The only person that knew there was arsenic in his blood was Velma. And she was the only person that actually could have saved his life. But she stood by silent as she watched him die. Her defense, on the other hand, claimed that all these doctors that she had been going to had put her on so many drugs that she didn't even know where she was or what she was doing most of the time. Her, judge, her judgment was so badly impaired that and she was just a slave to these drugs. And I personally wanted to know what drug she was taking. And I looked around and there was a small part, it was like a partial list of some of the drugs she had been prescribed at the time. And one of them was Elevil, which is used to treat depression. Cinequan, I don't know if I think that's how you pronounce that. It's used to treat depression and, and anxiety. Tranxine, which is an opioid, also used to treat anxiety. That comes, you know, it's the same family as morphine. She was also taking Tylenol-3, which is a controlled substance used for pain. And that can only be prescribed to you. You can't get it any other way. And she also was taking Valium, which is another anti-anxiety medication, which is similar to morphine. So those were all brought into evidence, along with the fact that she had OD'd at least four times. And so the defense, the defense basically was trying to blame the doctors for, for all these murders. And, um, you know, that she OD'd four times doesn't really surprise me if she was mixing all those drugs together. So... It's just the irresponsible drug use, but, you know, that's what happens when you become addicted to something, you know, it grabs a hold of you. And it's true what they say, you know, they were saying she didn't know where she was or what she was doing half the time, but, uh, Jacobson decided to put Velma on the stand in her own defense. And this is something that he, he was kind of hesitant to do at first, um, but he claimed that if, if Velma could get up on the stand and explain what her state of mind was to the jury, maybe they would feel some c compassion and uh, maybe she would be able to get out of the situation and then jury would find her not guilty. And she was up there. She answered every single question that was thrown at her. And uh, after all, since she was so honest, the jury soon found out what they were dealing with, which was an extremely addicted person who was addicted to multiple drugs and these drugs were causing her to act out with terrible judgment you know it also it caused her to forge checks to pay for the drugs you know to keep feeding this addiction she wanted to tell the doctors so badly about that arsenic that was coursing through roland taylor's body but she feared her return to prison so she decided not to tell anybody about that and then prosecutor Britt. He went straight for the jugular after this and instantly just attacked Velma's character. He called her a hypocritical murderer that hid behind Christian values. And he just he wanted to try to show the jury how manipulative she actually was. And Velma just couldn't stand the heat. She kept pushing back against Brit, starting to open up and say stupid things and, and kind of attack the prosecutor, which is exactly what he wanted her to do. She played right into his hand. 
you know, and uh, she fumbled over her words many times, and she nearly implicated herself on many occasions. She didn't murder anybody, she claimed. Uh, People just died around her after she administered poison to them. Why would that be her fault that they can't handle their poison? Besides, how could she be responsible for deaths that were declared natural by the medical examiners? So here she is trying to, you know, just trying to manipulate everyone around her again. Like, you know, they died because of some other reason, you know. It wasn't my poison that I gave them that killed them. You guys said that it was all natural causes. How could you now be charging me with murder, you know, which I guess kind of makes sense in a weird way. But uh, it was when she was quoted as saying, quote, I don't believe it killed them really end quote, and the it which she was referring to was the arsenic. So she basically admitted to giving them the poison right there on the stand. And then the prosecutor, Britt, asked her about this rat poison that she used. He said, quote, so you knew these compounds would certainly make people sick, end quote. Her response was simply, quote, I knew it would make them sick, end quote. So again, here she is on the stand admitting to dosing multiple people with rat poison, which was the same substance that killed Roland Taylor, which was the person she was on trial in the first place for murdering. But Velma's defense attorney, Jacobson, just wouldn't let that drug addiction go. I mean, it it seemed to be his only defense in the whole matter, that she was so hopped up on pills she didn't know what she was doing, which I don't think that defense ever holds up in court. And, uh... He even called up multiple doctors to try to testify on what her frame of mind was. And all they could say was that the drugs possibly could have clouded her judgment, but it definitely, none of those drugs rendered her insane at any point. So, you know, overall they knew Velma Barfield was just a drug addict that stole money to supply her habit. And eventually she graduated to murder. She would do anything to keep feeding her addiction She knew exactly what she was doing and she didn't care about what the outcome was going to be as long as she was sedated in the way she wanted to be sedated. But her callousness and her cocky attitude would all but seal her fate. She even faked applause after Prosecutor Britt finished his closing statements. Kind of the slow clap that I see the kids doing today to kind of mock someone else. And uh, I don't think that helped in her case whatsoever. And the jury quickly deliberated and came back with a guilty verdict in the first degree. They also recommended the death penalty to Judge McKinnon, and he quickly agreed. Velma Barfield would be sent to death row at Central Prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, to await her execution for the murder of Roland Stewart Taylor. Now, that prison, it actually wasn't a death row per se, because Velma was the only female inmate that was sentenced to death at the time. So she was actually housed in a section of the prison that was for people that were prone to escape and for prisoners that were in there for, uh, I guess, mental illness or some sort of crime they committed, uh, but they were found mentally ill at the time. So she was put there in that section of the prison as the only woman that was there basically getting ready to be put to death. Velma Barfield had a very rough time early on in that prison cell. Uh, She still was highly addicted to all those pills she was taking, and 
she basically had to quit cold turkey all those drugs up to that point and she had serious withdrawals and the only thing that saved her was the doctor giving her antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication and then he had to wean her off of those drugs so all in all it took about one year behind bars before Velma was actually clean off of drugs while in prison she would only listen to the Christian radio station and then she would claim to be a born-again Christian she would spread the word to other inmates and uh, actually attracted the attention from all sorts of Christians around and um, she said she was kind of lying to herself thinking she was a Christian this whole time but she knew she was just going through the motions going to church professing her love for Jesus Christ but she didn't really believe any of it until she was behind bars and I think she finally saw what what her future was going to be and so she turned to Christianity to help her get through that but none of the victims families they didn't believe a word of it they said she always claimed to be a Christian even while she was murdering her their loved ones she claimed to be a Christian what what was different now why should they believe any of her nonsense now and in their minds this was all just a ruse for Velma to avoid the death penalty and like I said she somehow garnered all this attention from fellow Christians even the famous Billy Graham and his wife Ruth they considered her a sister in Christ and they kept in touch with her by mail throughout her entire stay in prison so here she is still manipulating people Billy Graham was a you know that's a pretty big name and so she even she tricked that guy too so I don't know she was a, a wily wily woman that's for sure over the next six years Velma went through appeal after appeal and lawyer after lawyer trying to get off of this this death sentence but she was denied every single time nobody was buying her story it was too obvious what she had done any person that she had close contact with in the past few years had died from poisoning of one kind or another or a house would burn down or you kind of get the idea here you know so her appeals team they tried even bringing in you know a psychiatrist and this lady was a professor of psychiatry her name was Dorothy Otnow Lewis and she went in to meet with Velma and after after meeting with her she claimed that Velma had another personality living inside of her by the name of Billy and Billy was the one that killed all of those people not Velma Velma was just a poor little girl that was sexually abused and so Billy told Velma to take a seat while he handled everything and of course the judge didn't buy that story at all and he said quote one of them did it I don't care which one end quote so he's basically saying sure even if she does have Billy living up in her head Billy still killed him and she is Billy so one of those one of those people did it one of those murdered and uh, it you know that's what it is Velma's son Ron during one of his final visits to his mother in prison he finally asked the question that had been plaguing his mind over the years he knew time was running out that he needed to make any last amends you know with his mother and he also needed the truth he needed to know if his mother had killed his father so he asked her quote did you kill him 
Velma's response was simply, quote, I'm sure I probably did, end quote. She then went on to tell the story of that fateful day. She claimed her memory is kind of foggy from it, so she doesn't entirely remember, but she thinks that maybe after her husband Thomas had passed out in bed, maybe she put a lit match at the foot of the bed, or maybe it was a cigarette she didn't quite remember, and then she left the room as it burned and closed the door. Maybe she did that. She, she couldn't quite remember, but she did say she probably did. Velma Barfield also wrote an autobiography entitled Woman on Death Row while she was in the clink. A church minister helped her write the book, and he would later tell people she admitted to killing Jennings Barfield, her second husband, as well. He was the one that died from heart failure, and everybody assumed, you know, he had a lot of health problems, so it wasn't really too much of a surprise that he would die from heart failure, but apparently she admitted to killing him as well with poison. Clearly, Velma was not the saint that she claimed to be. But like I say, Christian after Christian was lining up to tell her how much they loved her and how much they supported her. Even after Velma had exhausted all of her appeals and after she had been denied clemency by the governor, that Christian pastor, Billy Graham, he still just had to talk to her. You know, even after, like I said, Governor James Hunt, who was governor of North Carolina at the time, he denied her clemency um, because in his words, quote, they were literally tortured to death, end quote. That's how he described the victims of Velma Barfield. So he denied any, any clemency request was denied, but Billy Graham, Christian pastor, still had to talk to her. Not only did he speak to her, but he actually told her that he envied her. During their final conversation, Graham said, quote, Velma, in a way, I envy you because you're going to get to heaven before I do, end quote. So Billy Graham believed that Velma was still going to heaven for those crimes she committed. And then Velma was able to speak by telephone to Graham's daughter, Anne. In this conversation, Anne told Velma not to think of the gas chamber as an execution chamber, but rather think of it as, quote, the gateway to heaven, end quote. She had so much support from the Christian community, it's no wonder that she thought she would get away with murder. I mean, in her mind, all she had to do was, you know, apologize to Jesus and everything would go away again, and she would be let through the gates into heaven. Of course, you're going to commit murder in your mind, drug-addled mind, if you think all you have to do is say you're sorry at the end and it all go well. Of course you're going to do it. Thankfully, the justice system in America does not agree with that philosophy. And on November 2nd, 1984, Velma Barfield was put to death by lethal injection. Before her death, she was asked for one final statement. And, I mean, if you're given the last chance to, to clear the air and to apologize to the victim's families and all that. You would think you would be sincere, take some time and apologize, and really show regret and remorse for what you've done. And she basically gave about one line of, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, I know I caused harm, sorry, sorry. But then she just went on to praise all the other people in her life. 
She went on to thank everyone who had supported her through that difficult time she had to spend in jail for six years. She thanked the prison and everybody involved for showing her just such a great time during her incarceration. I mean, I just, I can't, I can't imagine the gall of someone like that to just, the reason you're there in the first place is for murder. You have this one final chance to really show the remorse and regret and this, you praise everybody else, you know, for making your life better in prison rather than truly apologize to the, the victims. You know, the reason she was in prison in the first place is because she was a murderer. You know, in case you've forgotten out there, this is a lady killer, you know. She murdered her own mother, for fuck's sake. I mean, come on. And all she had to do is this, oh, I'm sorry. Just move on from that. But then go on to just glorify all the other Christians and people that supported her during her stay in prison. I don't think so. We can look at the case of Velma Barfield in a few different ways here. I mean... It's easy to just say she was a drug-addicted fiend that constantly needed a flow of money to keep her habit alive. You know, she would lie, cheat, steal, do, any, do anything to get the money. They would provide her the relief from this supposed horrible life that she had lived this whole time, you know. Yes, she was a victim of sexual abuse at a very young age. And that's, I think I've said before, it's something not everybody recovers from something like that. You know, maybe the trauma from her childhood was too much to bear, you know, and she just lashed out at other people to punish them for her terrible upbringing. I mean, people have done that in the past. They blame the world around them. And like I said, they grew up in abject poverty during the Great Depression. And, you know, it's possible she lashed out just because she never felt like she was dealt a fair hand in life. You know, maybe she lashed out because of the way men treated her throughout her life. Back in those days, you know, women were not treated fairly at all or respectfully in any way. Um, maybe she snapped back, snapped back at the world because of that. Um, no matter what the reason for Velma's actions were, they were not only against the law, but against any moral compass that we're all supposed to share and use. She knew what she was doing. She knew the consequences. Uh, she did jail time before for forging checks. She knew, she knew what the possibilities were. And, uh, I just think we, we all should just leave those revenge killings to Dexter and all those other fictional characters in literature. Velma Barfield, or as she would be known in the end, death row granny would be the first woman to be executed in the United States since 1962. And she was also the first since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. She was also the first woman ever to be executed by lethal injection. So she's got that going for her as well. So the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. It actually took eight years to find a lady killer that was worthy enough to execute. You know, Velma had actually been killing since before 76, so... She knew what her punishment would be at the end of it all. She, she can't lie. She can't hide behind that. She knew what was coming for her. Velma was buried in a small rural cemetery in North Carolina near her first husband, Thomas Burke. She was dead at the age of 52. And that is the story of the death row granny, Velma Barfield, from North Carolina 
our Lady Killer of the Week. So there you have it, folks. We have officially just completed Season 1 of Lady Killers. With this uh, homeschooling coming up next week, uh, I'm just not going to have as much time to devote to any new episodes. I will continue to do research. I will continue to keep writing the episodes. And uh, when I get some free time, I'll try to, to bank some of these episodes so I'll be able to drop some for you in a few months here. I'm looking to uh, want to start up Season 2 around Thanksgiving time. So you can look forward to that. And uh, any updates about this podcast or about Loon Lake and our progress, you can uh, check our website out, 1129productions.com. And there'll be all the information there. Uh, if we can get progressing pretty nicely on the pre-production of Loon Lake here, uh, I'll be able to post, if we are able to do a casting call for Loon Lake, I'll post that information on our website as well. And uh, see about maybe getting you into Loon Lake if you want to be in it. And uh, you can also send questions or comments to us at our email address for this podcast, which is the lady killers pod at gmail.com and i will respond accordingly i will leave a link in the notes as well for you to uh contribute to this podcast if you feel so inclined obviously it's not required to listen to this podcast it will remain free for everybody but if you feel like supporting this podcast in any way go ahead and click that link and uh help us out it's greatly appreciated no matter the amount or who donates, it is just greatly appreciated, like I say. Let's just keep our chins up, folks. Uh, let's keep, you know, looking positively forward towards, I don't know, a newer and brighter future that I know we all have in us. Uh, you should make sure to exercise your right to vote in November because that's the only way things will change in your favor. Keep social distancing going so we can... Dig our way out of this uh, pandemic we're living through right now. Um, show kindness, compassion, love whenever you get the chance. It's the only way that we're going to lead each other and lead this planet into a safe and hopeful future. You know, people often talk, there's a quote by Gandhi, people often talk about, uh, you know, the change, you need to be the change that, that you want to see in the world, and that's absolutely true. It's so true right now, actually, too, because uh, because we, the people, are going to change the trajectory of this civilization that we're living. I will leave you at the end of this season one with a quote from the epitome of love and compassion, Mother Teresa. She said, quote, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the waters to create many ripples, end quote. There it is, folks. Get out there. Create some ripples. I'm Abraham. I hope you have sweet dreams. <laughs>